0: You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zaro. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women Join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics. For today's show, with a group of women who are not just engaged in that forward motion and that movement through the pipeline, they are actually building the very workplaces and cultures that help women thrive and rise to the top. In our first segment today, we talked with Harper Wilde's co-founders and CEOs, and we're continuing our discussion of women in entrepreneurship with someone on the other side of the equation, Gail Ball, managing partner of Chestnut Street Ventures. As many of us know, and as we talked about earlier, investing is traditionally a male-dominated field with a huge impact on the development of new businesses worldwide, Um, often continuing a cycle of men funding male-led businesses and, unfortunately, not putting those same dollars towards businesses started by women. However, this is starting to shift, largely thanks to women like Gail Ball. Her work in encouraging women to take leading roles in investment companies leads other women to greater financial freedom and social impact. And we know that if we want more women to build and run effective businesses, we need more women in venture capital. So for this reason, and many more, we're delighted to have Gail Ball with us in the studio today. For those of you who don't know her background, she's the managing partner of Chestnut Street Ventures. She's held decision-making posts and nearly... Every seat around the financial services table, banking executive, regulator, service provider, and board member in both for-profit and not-for-profit and social impact markets. Among her many areas of expertise are financial services, portfolio development, financial analysis, and information tech. She recently served as a C-suite member of the Corps Bank and has worked in executive roles at PNC Bank, Chase, and Capital One. She's a member of Reserve Trust and another amazing Wharton alumna. So with that, welcome home, Gay. Thank you very much. So, in the last half hour, you were here as we were talking with the co-founders of Harper Wild. Um, From a VC's perspective, what are what are the things that they're doing that are right? What's contributing to their success?
1: Fabulous question. The two women who have founded Harper Wild are bringing something to the table that we look for in every founder uh, set of founders. We're looking for people who are passionate and grounded, and have the personal resilience to find the answers to the problems that they uh, saw in the marketplace and they're trying to solve for everybody else. The other thing that I heard them say, which was just really uh, fun, was that one of those special circumstances that they keep coming up against, pitching their company to women, that they found a solution, which I have often advocated even before I came to Chestnut Street Ventures, which is figuring out how to really respect the person on the other side of the table. And they used the very terminology that I often use, which is to figure out enough about that person to get in their shoes and figure out what they're thinking so that you can frame how you deliver your information in a way that they're going to hear it.
0: So there's a key word in what you just said that I want to explore. It wasn't
1: um, about
0: how to convince them. It's respect, Why is respect a factor in this, to such a degree, particularly as you're pitching?
1: My experience and what I read about in the industry experience overall is that when it really comes down to it, people in my seat are really making a bet on the person that's sitting across the table from them. And we end up having to really uh, become, uh, you know, find the faith, right, and really buy their story and feel like they're op- they're open to our ideas about how to use the things that we've experienced and apply them in their own company. And so respect is really fundamentally a two-sided relationship. It's a trusted relationship. And those are key components to actually any monetary decision, including the investment decision that a VC is making.
0: So it's funny. In the same way that Jenna and Jane started by talking about core values, there's really a set of core values that are part of the VC-entrepreneur relationship.
1: Yes, uh, absolutely. I think that's absolutely the case. That said, it's hard to believe that's the case in every single you know <laughs> circumstance when there is such disparity in the uh, funding equation and, of course, most recently in research that was published collab- by collaboration from people here and at other uh, universities about how the conversations with women are different, trying to get at the same answer, supposedly, but asking a different question instead of asking an entrepreneur uh, how, how they're solving um, you know, a, a problem and providing a product to address that problem. Instead, they, you know, they ask the women why somebody else didn't do it first. Right, so as denying their capacity really to identify problems in the same way that the male entrepreneurs that they're seeing, uh, you know, come ironically, with. we know that this is a
0: pattern of unconscious bias that's actually interrupting the respect that they have for the women as leaders, ambitious problem solvers, and that the bias is getting in the way of that. Yes, absolutely, absolutely true. So, how do you work with women entrepreneurs to bypass this?
1: Well, I advocate um, my own personal version of the three R's, one of which is respect. Um, And I really was laughing almost to myself to hear uh, (laughs) Jen and Jane using those words because I really haven't met them in this capacity (laughs) before. Um, And also, they were so witty in how they did it. Yes, absolutely. Humor, by the way, I think is always incredibly powerful communication tool. Um, I know recently I saw something Adam Grant posted to that effect. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yes, brilliant and witty. The second R in my mantra is about being resourceful. And in that respect, I mean being a founder who is willing to be open to all kinds of other inputs and to look for resources in others that you might have, you know, denied or walked past or ignored. And, of course, when you're dealing with somebody – like an audience of all men who can't abide by how you speak and they're not hearing you, you've got to start figuring out what resources they could bring to your uh, solution and your business and change your questions to draw out their resources. Because when they give you something, then they have more of a stake, uh, you know, in your success. So I think Keeping resourcefulness and being open to where the resources are around the table is another key element of communicating with VCs. And the third piece is resiliency. Uh, and in that respect, what I frequently uh, co- coach people on is that is not just getting up and you know fighting the good fight uh, the next day, but actually being prepared for the fight. And that instead of looking at resilience as a response, look at it as a proactive you know, measure, and to get yourself ready for the unexpected or adverse outcome in the conversation. And, you know, have that little... And be armed. And be armed. Exactly. So in the
0: same way that before you go into a marathon, you hydrate, you sleep, you exercise, you make sure you have your nutrition, that's going to protect you against the onslaught against your body. Your information, your practice enables you to go in there and take whatever's coming your way. Absolutely. So I want to back up, though, because it sounds like One of the key things to coping with that dynamic when you're pitching um, and being able to kind of penetrate the negativity that you're feeling and listen for what it is that's going to crack them open and get them to listen to you and be in dialogue requires some EQ, some emotional intelligence, Mm -hmm. which, you know. A lot of people say women come to kind of naturally. I like to believe men have it too. But the question of how we can tap into it, particularly in an environment where we're anxious and where we have to be consummate professionals.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I'll just say to volunteer something from my own experience, from uh, my youngest days, I didn't do that very well. I actually – came to the University of Pennsylvania and to Wharton because I didn't do that well. My parents wanted me to be an accountant so that I could be independent and, you know, support myself. And they had it in their mind that I would go to some other college instead of the university, <laughs> where if I exhausted all the math courses and the accounting, there would be nothing else to do. And I said, well, then I'm only going to the University of Pennsylvania because I can never practice a profession where I have to sit in a room. And I have to practice where all the rules come from 12 men sitting around a table making the rules, you know, which then was the Financial Accounting Standards Board. So it took me a while to learn that they had fruitful information and that I should be open uh, to having it.
0: Um, So there's another part of this equation. So we know that how the entrepreneur makes the pitch, how a woman entrepreneur learns to permeate that kind of wall of bias is critical. What about the other side? What are you doing with the VCs, to get them to be open-minded, because at the end of the day, they do want to make money off of these businesses, and the women are representing a whole new um, set of talent that's coming into the marketplace
1: and the economy. Mm-hmm. A- absolutely. Um, two things that are top of mind for me and my fund, and actually for my colleagues at the other Alumni Venture Capital Funds, of which uh, you know I'm a part from the Launch Angels perspective, Um First and foremost, we're trying to be really uh, a resource for the young women coming into venture capital. So we have an extraordinary fellows program where undergraduate and graduate students who have an interest in developing a career in VC volunteer essentially five hours of their time. To work with us primarily in our marketing work, but they also support us from a venture analytics perspective and from a technology perspective. Hold on for one moment. So while we're there, if there
0: are young women who want to become a fellow, Mm -hmm. what skills do they need to have and what's the application process?
1: Uh, Let me start with the application process. Uh, We have a website. I can't recite it precisely, (laughs) but if you email me at gail at com, I'll absolutely get it to the right place and to the team that manages and creates this great environment for our fellows. And when you do email her, let her know you heard her on Women at Work. Excellent. (laughs) Excellent. and so we're, our fellows have great placement rates after they complete their work with us in the venture capital community. And so that's one very critical thing that we can do. The other critical thing that we are doing is really trying to concentrate on the women who have deals, irrespective of the size of the firm and where their you know firm is and what sector they're in. Since our fund is industry agnostic, we look for a global footprint, we can be as open door as possible to other women who have deal flow to share with us. That gives us an opportunity to understand what will make them successful and, you know, send deals their way. So we're working both within launch, you know, within Chestnut Street Ventures and also with the industry to try and improve things. We're not, I certainly don't want to take credit in any way, though, for all the other good things that are happening. There are other venture capital funds that are promulgating policy statements about uh, you know, anti-discriminatory behavior and about advocacy for underrepresented people, you know in venture capital. Here, right in Philadelphia, we have um, a firm who publishes an annual report about their experience with their portfolio companies who recently said that companies that they have funded that have at least one female founder, perform 63% better in their portfolio than all the other Wait companies. Wait a minute. Say that again. Yeah. Uh, that a company that they invest in that has at least one female founder performs 63% better.
0: 63% better? And what are the standards of performance that are being used?
1: Uh, those are actually return performance uh, you know, metrics. And of course, returns are on paper for an extended period of time, but the grounding is tr- you know, transparent to people. That's an enormous difference. Yes. To what do you attribute it? Me personally? Yeah. um, I attribute it to women's different decision-making. And just to give an analogy outside of our industry, when I was at the Bancorp, I worked with um, somebody who was a leader early on in uh, securitizations who actually had a case study, a Harvard case study written about them. Today, what they do primarily is um, extreme sports. And he told me he never attempts an extreme sport event unless there's at least one woman in the team that they're going out with because the women keep them safe and smart.
0: So it, it's a different way of thinking that balances out Absolutely. the strengths and also fills the weaknesses. Absolutely. Once again, a diversity of thought that's necessary for innovation. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Lars Arrow, and I'm talking with Gail Ball, managing partner of Chestnut Street Ventures. If you have a question about what we're discussing, and if there are any aspiring entrepreneurs listening who have a question for Gail, give us a call. You can reach us at one 844 warton That's one 1- Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. 942 So, Gail, I appreciate that you're noting that there are outstanding examples of good practice, that there are policies that are being written, that um, there's a whole community that's trying to make progress here. Um, yet, you're also doing something really important, which is you're starting with your own culture and your own community. So let's start with the community at large. How do – because we talk all the time about networking – For you, in venture capital, where does, how do you approach relationship building and learning about other people, whether it's potential people to serve as VCs or potential entrepreneurs?
1: I go back, I think, to the, something you said earlier, crediting Jenna and Jane, which is to just have a sense of humor and lightness when you're talking to anybody about anything. Um, Last week, I was on my way to and working hard to get there uh, to a family reunion on my husband's side. And literally, every person I spoke to last week, whether they were a founder, uh, or whether they were somebody interested in investing, you know, learned that about me and learned from me that my husband's family is a role model for tolerance in every conceivable way. And in our family reunion, there are people multiple languages spoken, there are multiple ethnicities, there are People who've been successful and others who might be considered, you know, less successful, and every one of them is, you know, welcome. And actually, every person I spoke to, and by the way, they were all men (laughs) last week, um, but every person I spoke to, that really resonated with them. And I heard things about their family and about their own, um, where they were this summer, taking their kids to college tours, and it really made the conversation so much more personal. uh, And it created a type of trust that. Might have been transactional as it related to just having a conversation, but that's what I find consistently delivers the results. It consistently produces the information sharing that makes us both better after we hang up the phone. And
0: also, for those of you who are not in the studio with us, you could see Gail smiling
1: (laughs) and her her cheery cheeks all
0: up and rosy as you talk about this because it sounds like it's fun. And it makes networking
1: a part of being alive and engaging with other people absolutely it, it is it's funny that you use the word "fun" because even strangers people i've never met before when i'm on the phone with them, both again investors and funders, frequently say to me as we're concluding the call, "Gosh, it sounds like you really are passionate about this or you really like this and, I say to them what my college roommate actually said to me when I told her about this role. Um, She said to me, gosh, Gail, it just sounds like it's the greatest job in the world. You're making people's dreams come true. The investors who haven't had access to an asset class that gives them uh, a different return stream with a different correlation and a different upside than other things that they've had access to before. And then you've got funders who are dreaming about changing the world or the experience that somebody else is having, and you have the chance to help them either with your own capital or with your input, right? We, we produce and create value even if we don't fund them.
0: So this is the part that you're passionate about.
1: Absolutely. Is the way that
0: you're impacting lives in the world around us. Yes, uh, absolutely true. So back up. How did you get here from fintech?
1: Actually, I got here in a very um, unusual way, but I spent 35 years after graduating from the University of Pennsylvania, aspiring to be an econometrician and change the world by giving people a way to see what was happening around them differently, and in particular in businesses to see how what was happening around them differently. And as you highlighted, I had a chance to do that in a number of different seats, but I did it in a period of time when the technology morphed from My sitting in the computer lab here and using languages, I'm going to say them, I don't know if anybody (laughs) will recognize them, Fortran and APL, um, moving to other kinds of fourth-generation languages, ultimately to PCs. Uh, So the whole, in order to do my work, I had to become a fintech person instead of a financial systems person. And ultimately, when I was at the Fed, looking at specifically the impact of technology change on things that people weren't really asking, how has the risk of a transaction changed? Who's bearing that risk? That's changing. How do? How does realizing that risk change what people do in terms of what they tender at the you know cash register at the point of sale to get something done? Um, turn, I ended up really coming back full circle to the policy questions, um, but one downside of working for the government is that they do a lot less (laughs) than gets done in the private sector. So I was really happy to have the opportunity to come to the Bancorp, which brought me back to this area. But then one day, I was the benefit of one of those LinkedIn, you know, we have 10 jobs for you emails. You're kidding. No. And I clicked. And there was the advertisement, looking for a managing partner to come and found a community of entrepreneurs within the University of Pennsylvania alumni community. And for me, it was just this magical combination of taking what I had learned and developed and leveraged in this long career in only one vertical and be able to apply it now to all of the other sectors in which we aspire to make investments on behalf of our uh, you know, investors and do it for a community that I've had a long and very happy relationship with. Um, in fact, if I just can take another minute, as I was thinking about coming on the show today... Um, Most of the women who made an impact on me in my career, coincidentally, were Penn grads. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I hadn't really thought about it that way until I was getting ready today. So Um, who were a few and how did they impact you? uh, Well, one of the first was Helen Frame Peters. Um, Actually, when I graduated from Penn, I went to work for a faculty member who had gone out to do something else. And he'd hired, as he called them, a bunch of whiz kids. And one of them was a his, pardon me, a PhD in finance from Wharton, and he introduced me to Helen Frame Peters. And aside from being inspired by her success and her migration from academia to Wall Street, back to academia, she introduced me to the idea that if women were excluded, then we could just build our own club. And we started an organization, along with other women in this market, called what was then called the Philadelphia Finance Association. And I can still remember men clamoring to come. To our content. Uh, So I really learned that the advocacy that I had seen at home and seen in other circumstances really could work work in the (laughs) business world, you know, too. Um, Later on, I had a strange um, circumstance of meeting somebody who thought I was somebody else, actually, (laughs) um, who turned out to be a lifetime friend of mine, who is um, a 1963 grad of the college, Sandra Williamson, who's been the president of the Trustees Council of Penn Women and a number of other great personal accomplishments. Um, Sandra, among other things, called me when I was at home with my second child and said, Gail, I have a job that nobody else wants to do. If I give you a 20% raise and let you work four days a week so it's the same income, will you come do this You know, <laughs> terrible job? Um, which was a transformational moment for me. It was actually my first tech job running uh, credit policy systems for uh, what is now being Mellon. And so um, the, these women just have, uh, they started me on my way. And so I feel great satisfaction now being in a place where I can do that for other well, women. Give giving that back I may... to
0: other women. I, yeah. I can't resist asking if you don't mind. So you were home with your second child and you got this compelling offer, come do this awful job. How was the transition back to work for you?
1: Uh, well, it was great and it was horrible. Um, <laughs> I Uh, I laugh knowingly. I'm I'm trying to think of the the appropriate word to use on the air, but let me just say that I was still nursing my son, which was completely visible to everybody (laughs) over the course of any day because I came back to work so soon. Um, But also during that time frame, as an example, we had a regulatory visit, a standard thing. Um, It was a day I was going to be home. I brought my son with me, and there was the bank examiner bouncing my son on his knee in the bank. And so it was really actually quite reaffirming. Um, To find both the support from somebody like Sandra and from the enterprise, but then also to find that it was present, you know, in the world, that the world was really changing and was beginning to let people get the job done however they could get it done. So you
0: had this unusual path into VC for um, people who want to go into it now, and particularly women. What do you think are really useful ways to develop skill? And so that, like you said, you're planning your resilience in advance and you're um, arming yourself so you can really be maximally effective. Mm
1: -hmm. I think I didn't appreciate this until I started this job, that what historically for me, I characterized as a skill around advocacy, whether that was social justice advocacy or whether it was workplace uh, advocacy, I didn't really appreciate the similarity between that work and selling somebody something. And- understanding why things are the way they are or why somebody holds an opinion you know that they presently have, and figuring out how to have a conversation that is respectful and keeps them open-minded to what you're offering or what you're you know trying to share. Um, and so I would suggest that anybody who wants to go into venture capital should have a job where they have to sell something because you become a vastly better listener if you have to get somebody to listen to you. And then whatever side of the table you find yourself on in this VC environment, whether you're a founder, whether you're a community manager, whether you're a funder, those that listening and advocacy skill set will get you everywhere.
0: It's so funny. You know, we started the day by talking about bras and entrepreneurship and funding, but there seem to be some recurring things that are coming out. What you're really talking about once again it's the core values of respect and listening. Absolutely. And that it's essential to the process. Um, if there are people who want to get involved with Chestnut Street, am I getting this right? Yes, absolutely. Chestnut Street Ventures, mm-hmm. um, or they're looking for VC support, um, who should they reach out to? How do they find you?
1: Well, on the web, it's simply www.chestnutstreetventures.com. If you want to speak to me, then it's just Gail at com. If you're an, a founder... And you want to have input or consideration for your uh, company, then you should send an email to deals at venture – pardon me, at chestnutstreetventures.com. I have a fabulous colleague who holds two degrees from Penn who manages that pipeline and would welcome that um, offer from funders uh, – pardon me, from founders (laughs) – Gail, yeah, I can't thank you
0: enough. You have brought your respect and warmth and humor to Women at Work and gave us some really great advice and insights. Thanks so much for making time. Thank you for inviting me. I'd like a special thanks to my guests today, including Jane Fisher and Jenna Kerner. I'd also like to thank my fabulous producer, Patty Hall, our associate producer, Ali Freed, our fantastic sound, enge- sound engineer, Tatiana Zamis. I'm Laura Zarro, and you have been listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM 111. Thanks so much, everybody, and go listen with an open heart.